Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Marshall Auerbach, who is a market analyst and research associate at the Levy Institute for Economics at Bard College. Thanks for joining us, Marshall. Thanks for having me. So you recently wrote an article uh, called entitled Every Step the EU Takes Toward Financial Unity Sows New Seeds of Its Potential Collapse. So recently, the EU released a joint declaration uh, 750 billion euros are in this recovery plan. Uh, as you note in the article, there are some worthwhile policies, uh, but those policies also pose problems for wealthier northern countries uh, with France caught in the middle. Can you talk about the positive elements of this package, why northern countries oppose it, and France's role in this process? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, they... I think anything uh, that works to uh, reduce the after effects of the pandemic are good. I think anything that works to address uh, climate change is good. I think any kind of public spending built towards um, uh, re-establishing infrastructure, particularly public health uh, infrastructure, is a, is a good thing. The, the real problem, as usual, with the uh, European Union is the scale. Um, you're looking at a, a package which is um, less than um, 2% of uh, total GDP in aggregate. Um, and if you look at the scale of the collapses in many of these countries, um, you know, I Italy is uh, forecast to, its GDP will probably forecast by about or close to 13% this year. Um, same with Spain. Uh, even a country like Germany, which is considered to have had a good crisis, quote unquote, will probably see its economy collapse by about eight and a half percent. France will also be very adversely affected. Um, Twelve and a half percent decline is, is, is the forecast. So it's also pretty ugly. And um, really, the, the the again, it comes back to the the institutional problems. You have this um, uh, construction of a of a of a single currency union without a supranational treasury to go with it, which means that you can't just um, automatically extend fiscal assistance uh, to um, a state in need the way you say you can, at least in theory in the US, it's not being done very well here either, but for different reasons, um, or a Canadian province. Um, so every country still has its own fiscal policies and, and you have to secure agreement amongst 27 different countries. And those that aren't doing as badly like the wealthier Northern countries, said, well, hang on, we'll, we'll give them loans. We don't want to give them too many um, uh, free grants because um, we still think they'll waste the money and they should have to pay it back. So that, that's that's really, it goes back to the longstanding institutional problems which have afflicted the European Union from day one. In France's role within that? Well, um, Emmanuel Macron, the uh, French president, uh, was a leading player. I mean, the, let's take a, a step further back. I mean, the, the, the Franco-German access has, has long been the, uh, the focal point around which the whole uh, European Union has, has, has turned. So um, generally, when you get initiatives coming from both France and Germany, that's significant. And I think Emmanuel Macron in particular has been um, um, quite uh, aggressive in terms of trying to force uh, the European Union to start um, federalizing or mutualizing its debt in the same way that, say, Alexander Hamilton uh, was able to assume all the state's debts and uh, and thereby create a, a national treasury function of sorts. And, and he has not been able to get um, Germany to um, uh, go along with this in, in any substantial way. There's been sort of slight nudges along the way. The European Commission, for example, 
which is the executive body of the European Union, will now be able to raise money independently of, of the national state governments uh, um, to uh, for, for these programs, which is a good thing. But you still haven't got the so-called Hamiltonian moment where it's all taken on by a supranational entity, which would, uh, I think, uh, solve the problem, helps to solve the problem of fiscal austerity, which is still um, afflicting all of these countries. And France, actually, even though it has some um, uh, pretensions of being a great global power these days, is actually almost as badly affected as um, Italy or Spain. And so it's uh, likely to be in the position soon of having to make an existential choice. Does it preserve that link, that strong institutional link with Germany, but at a cost of destroying its national economy? Or does it start to align its interests more with the Mediterranean countries like Italy, Spain, Greece, etc.? And Macron, in the, in the meantime, is offered uh, a series of austerity packages for France, for, yes. for workers within France. So you have this yes. contradiction that he's trying to play this mediating role uh, on the larger scale within the European Union, but then at home enacting all sorts of austerity. And as you note, of course, the French people have not you know, taken that lightly. We've seen the Yellow no. Vest movement. We've seen unions fighting back. Right. And we can expect more of that, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think if he goes on uh, with, say, the, the pension, he's deferred things like the pensions reforms that, that he's talked about. And um, I expect that if he tries to uh, resume those um, quote-unquote reforms, he will have uh, people on the, on the streets uh, uh, pretty aggressively uh, sometime in the not-too-distant future. And yes, it, you're, you're right. Uh, he has these great um, impulses uh, as, as far as the European Union goes. And yet, um, you know, he's very much a neoliberal. He's a market fundamentalist uh, in the same way that many of the center-left parties in Europe are right now. He's not a, a real social democrat. So... Um, he's he's hoisted on uh, a petard of his own contradiction, internal contradictions, as you note. And it seems to me that the backlash to those austerity programs, as you also mentioned in the article, it's not that it has to take the form of, say, uh, a left-wing sort of international anti-austerity movement. I mean, this could very well take the form and in increased uh, hyper-nationalist right-wing elements, um, political parties and in, in and political movements uh, that would even create further destabilization, not just internally, but throughout the continent. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's ironic because, uh, as I said, the, the center-left, uh, which is where you'd sort of expect to see these these kinds of progressive initiatives um, emanating from, has largely been co-opted by what I would call the Brussels, the Brussels neoliberal agenda. It's 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 technocracy run amok, and and it very much has a has a pro austerity bias. And the people that have been most forceful uh, in terms of campaigning against this have been right wing populists like uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, for example, in in France, but but also people like um, uh, Orban, Viktor Orban in in Hungary, and also in Poland. Um, unfortunately, they come with a host of other. Um, unsavory uh, baggage to go with it um, historically a lot of racism um, and, um, and 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 so it, it's their their politics is is extremely divisive and of course um, you know a country like Germany another one you don't really want to see a rise of right-wing populism again because we haven't had a particularly happy history of that in the, in the past as well so this is one of the things that's I think got to be resolved that the the, the left has got to come up with a a, a different model um, uh, in opposition to what the prevailing ideology is in Europe right now. What do you think that model is? I mean, we follow and, and have spoken with other analysts, you know, people like Giannis Varoufakis, others from from uh, the EU, 
what is what is your thinking? I mean, you mentioned in the article that incrementalism isn't going to cut it in this context. Um, so yeah, what would I, be like the, the significant steps that you would recommend that we could take in the short term? Um, well, I, Giannis is a friend and I largely agree with him ideologically. Um, um, I think that going for grand institutional fixes right now is, is very problematic. But what I have suggested in the past is um, something akin to um, per capita revenue sharing distributions that I, you know, we can, that one could theoretically do here in, in, the, in the US. And I would like to see um, uh, the European Central Bank effectively create uh, additional euros and just make per capita distributions um, to the various um, uh, Eurozone countries. Um, they probably could do that under the existing um, treaty uh, strictures, which are in, in, in the Maastricht Treaty. So it wouldn't recall, re entail any great institutional reforms. And the other good thing about it is that every country would benefit. The, Germany, for example, would be the largest beneficiary because it would re receive, as the largest economy, it would be re receiving the largest per capita distribution. So I think that's something that has yet to be tried. Um, I suggested this about... Um, 10 years ago to uh, uh, someone who uh, worked in the ECB and he said that it, it, it had it made sense economically but politically we weren't there yet uh, and that we, we, were, we had to go through a few more crises before that point would be uh, that kind of an argument would be accepted. I think we're closer to that now uh, especially next year when I think the, the second or third order effects of this uh, pandemic are likely to be manifested in, in Europe as a whole. And do you think your sort of aversion to those grand institutional fixes is that that's not ideological? Is that more of a practical political point? Yeah, that practical. Right? Okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, look, to me, the, the historical analogy I've often used with Europe is uh, uh, the United States in the sense that, you know, that when this country was formed in 1776, you had an article, the Articles of, of, of Confederation. And effectively, you, ha you had a model very similar to what you've got now in Europe. You had a, a weak central government with minimal taxing authority, and the states were able to have their own debts. And you had the strong states like Virginia and the fiscally weak states like, for example, New York. Um, and it wasn't until you had that institutional fix made um, that you were able to um, um, solve the problems and, and create a real um, United States of, of America. But that took a um, um, number of years of running uh, with, amidst a great economic instability. It took a, a, a constitutional convention, which uh, took several years to, um, um, to come to an, a, a consensus. And now we... we so I, and two wars. Is, yeah, and some wars. And, 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 and so it's, it's very, very difficult to do. And of course, you, you were then were dealing with 13 colonies, 13 states. Here you're dealing with um, 27 countries because even though they're not all in the Eurozone, um, they all have to come to an agreement to make the kinds of institutional changes that you would need to make to the Maastricht Treaty. So I just think um, we're not there yet. And certainly um, you could argue that um, the Europe of um, uh, that has been has, has uh, been created in the last years, it, it, part of the, pro the problems have come because of trying to push too hard on one end of it, the, the currency union at the expense of others. And, and so I think there'd be a reaction if you went for another grand institutional change and it would engender a lot of opposition. Our good friend Christian Parenti just recently wrote a book called Radical Hamilton. Uh, I think you, yeah. I think you would enjoy I, it. I read the, I, I, I read the review about it. Yes, I think she makes a lot of uh, good points. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I look, I, I, I don't think there's anything. Uh, what's interesting about that is I don't think there's anything fundamentally antithetical to the American, indeed, to the European traditions about um, using a. Uh, uh, having a strong 
state component to uh, do national industrial policy. And I still think the state is, is the best level uh, at which to do that, as opposed to uh, a, a super state or a, 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 a supranational structure. And ironically, the uh, countries that are heirs to that tradition, um, you know, are countries like Germany, France, who were big, uh, you know, Friedrich Liest, uh, who was a, Friedrich Liest was a, was a big um, a proponent of economic development and, and using the state as a major um, uh, um, uh, factor in creating that kind of national prosperity. And yet they are repudiating that tradition now. They sound more like, um, you know, the, the free market um, um, uh, libertarians that you get here in the in, in the U.S. and uh, upholding the sanctity of market fundamentalism, which is kind of ironic. Ironically, where you are seeing that that kind of push towards more national developmentalism is in the UK um, under under the Conservative administration of Boris Johnson. Right, right. No, and I mean we see and they're this. leaving. Yeah, and I this we're going to get to the article about Biden in the U.S. context, but this seems yeah. so contradictory even in the U.S. I mean, it would seem to me, and I'm ignorant. I'm not an economic analyst. I'm I'm not an economist, but it would seem to me that it would benefit even the capitalists. Um, to enact the kind of social economic programs that would give people a little bit of a break on healthcare, allow people more money in their pockets to spend. I mean, this ideology, I think best expressed by like maybe a Mitch McConnell, it seems so self-defeating and it seems as yeah. though some of the people who would support their political project uh, would be hurting their own material interests by doing so. I mean, how do we, how do you sort of explain this, this crazy contradiction? Well, I, I think it's in part a problem of the fact that a lot of these guys just don't think beyond the next couple of years that they, they, they see this big trough and they want to just, you know, get as much from it and they don't really think of the broader economic consequences. I mean, it was the same thing in the 1930s. You had some um, wealthy, uh, uh, what we would call the, the elites uh, or the oligarchs of those days um, who supported uh, FTR, like Bernard Baruch, um, and, and recognized that, you know, you had to... Um, give up a, a, a larger slice of pie in order to sustain the whole pie altogether. But uh, a, an even larger number still opposed him vociferously. And I think, you know, you, you, you get people that when they're in their own little bubble and they're doing extremely well and they, they, they don't see the bigger picture and they just see their interests under attack and they fight back instinctively against that. So I, I agree it's, it's highly corrosive and it's highly destructive, but that just seems to be the way it is. And you think that that's largely due to their sort of personal self political interests. I mean, how much of this, because you mentioned this playing out in the EU as well, how much of this is that that sort of Austrian economic ideology has been, has seeped into the, the sort of politic that we're in? I mean, how yeah, many, how sure much of this is that people believe this? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's uh, uh, Austrian e economics per se, but certainly neoliberalism, I, I would say, has is, is, is been a big factor. I just think that um, you've got that, um, uh, this, this, um, tremendous belief that the market is the is the optimal uh, market fundamentalism is the optimal way to, to promote economic development the, the state's role should be limited to um, creating rent for uh, free efficient markets and playing the role of umpire which I happen to disagree with and 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 um, that's that's really contrary to the uh, the European tradition as a whole um, until the 1980s and and beyond when that's that's all started to change and likewise here in the in the U.S. and it's it's unfortunate but um, and and then of course in Germany specifically you know you have the uh, the historic memory of Weimar and hyperinflation so that has historically uh, biased their 
um, uh, fiscal policies towards um, austerity. I think that's been another problem. And they've managed to, if you like, suffuse that ideology throughout the European Union because they are the dominant uh, economy. And you mentioned that there's sort of a third wave. I'm just working off of what you had said before, that there would be like sort of a, a third phase to this pandemic economic uh, crash that we face next year. What yeah. should we be looking out for over the next year or so in this development in the EU? Well, it's not just the EU. I think it's everywhere. The, the, the longer that you've had these, um, you know, the, the impacts of, these, uh, of the pandemic has gone on, the longer you've had forms of economic restriction, um, you know, I'm not going to get into a debate as to whether they were good or bad, but we've had them. And I think the longer they last for, the more you have um, the what economists like to call hysteresis, which is um, that you have uh, short-run problems become long-term in, in, in nature. And um, so many of these jobs are, have been destroyed for good, um, whether that be, say, in, in the service industries like restaurants, leisure, tourism, um, also aviation, um, uh, the hotel industry, uh, the, the, that's literally um, tens of millions of jobs that aren't going to be coming back. And the, the, the ongoing, the, so there's going to be an ongoing challenge beyond uh, the immediate, uh, even if we get a vaccine and we solve the, the pandemic, um, you're still going to have to deal with um, the reconstruction of these economies to deal with that, uh, that broader challenge, which is going to be very, very profound, I think. Do you think there's an opportunity to fundamentally restructure those economics? Uh, in other words, we have a lot of friends who work in the service sector industry and they fucking hate it. I mean, they hate every yeah. minute of it because it's yeah. a non-unionized, low-wage, shit work, no benefits, so on yep. and so on. Especially here in the U.S., I'm speaking specifically from our it's, context. It's, but it's getting like that way in, in, the U, in, in, in Europe as well. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's potentially, as you say, you know, like when, when you tear down a structure, you know, you, you can re rebuild something that's, that's way better or you can just try to recreate what you had before. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a political choice. So absolutely, there's a, um, I think there's um, a lot of things we could do to make um, our economies better and to work more favorably for a broader number of people. But um, uh, I, I don't see any evidence yet that uh, leading policymakers on either side of the Atlantic are ready to do that. No, and that gets to your to the second article I wanted to talk about today that you wrote, even if Biden wins in a blowout, which I think many of us are hoping for, for any number of reasons, the economy still isn't coming back. In this, this article, you describe this sort of changing geopolitical landscape that the United States unipolar moment is over, that we're moving into a multipolar uh, world. And it's been that way, in fact, as you argued, sort of for the last three or four decades, more, more and more moving into that direction. Yeah. Um, we see, we have Joe Biden or Donald Trump, I think, and I'm sure you would argue that it makes sense, strategic sense to get Trump out of office and to get Joe Biden in office. But all of us, I think, understand the limitations of Joe Biden, what he represents, and not just him, but where the Democratic Party sits ideologically and politically, where the Republican Party sits in the sort of total paralyzation that we've, we've uh, uh, experienced yeah. here in the U.S. politically. So, in other words, we always hear analysts say, oh, this, these would be the nice things that should happen if we want to make things better. And then I think a lot of us look at the political situation and go, well, none of those are viable in this situation. Like nobody's going to take yeah. those up. So then what is the, you know, what would be the result if indeed um, these, these uh, parties and these politicians decide not to do those things? And it seems to me that Joe Biden, without massive political pressure from below, uh, isn't going to, yeah. you know, offer the kind of economic programs that would make a significant difference. 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, I think uh, um, there is a priority to, uh, I mean, there's there's a risk of another four years of Trump that, you know, you don't have a democracy after that to, to begin with. So I, I, I can understand the imperative of getting him out of office. Um, that said, he, he um, you know, he, he, he did challenge a lot of the existing shibboleths uh, and truisms that have uh, governed uh, uh, this this country um, for many, many decades. And uh, so in the course of wrecking them or, or breaking a lot of taboo subjects, he's at least opened up the scope of possible debate, as has the pandemic. Uh, for example, um, you know, uh, if you had discussed a single-payer healthcare system um, just as recently as three or four years ago, that would have been considered a crazy idea, far too radical. I think now... Um, in the midst of a pandemic, you can see why it's it's um, there are many advantages to having a, a system that provides uh, Medicare to everyone and um, isn't uh, linked to then where healthcare isn't doesn't become a condition of, of employment employment because if you've got thirty million or, or so Americans uh, that are sick and they don't have access to insurance and they don't have access to treatment, then that runs contrary to even being able to deal with the the the, uh, the, the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, it, it, there's got to be continued pressure on, on on Biden. My fear is that you know, if he does uh, disappoint, um, that you could get a more extreme version from the right the next time around. And next time, the, the worry is that you get someone who's actually competent right. in terms of knowing how to use the levers of government to achieve a much more radically right agenda. I mean, I'm, I have in mind yep. someone like a Tom Cotton, for example, who uh, you know is a who's a smart guy, dangerously smart, but, but certainly knows how to, um, you know, push and pull the levers in a way that Trump clearly does not. And um, that's the real risk of if Biden disappoints again. I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I would argue for those watching and listening that a lot of that is also contingent upon what labor unions do, what students yeah. do, what workers What's do. What's left of labor unions, that is. I mean, that's another thing I think that's, um, I think it, we, we need to have some sort of restructuring of the work environment, uh, if not to create, uh, recreate labor unions, at least to create work councils, some form of code determinism like you have in Germany. You, you, you need to rebalance um, uh, the, the economic uh, power in, the, in, in this country. Um, if you're going to make a start at um, solving our problems. And you think that would start at the workplace? Yes, I'd like to see that. Um, I'm not necessarily against a, a, a big business per se. I think there's, all, you know, big businesses have more capacity to provide generous health and welfare benefits uh, um, to, than a, a smaller business can. Um, so I have no problem about that. But I think you, you need a, a stronger countervailing policy on the other side, a, a countervailing institution on the other side. You know, you really, you had that in the 1960s and 70s, what, what's known as um, tripartitism, you know, the, the, uh, tripartism, the, the law, a big big uh, business meeting with big labor, you know, something like what, you know, it was the UAW, for example, that was a, a major um, uh, force for progressivism under Walter Reuter. And, 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 and I'd like to see that kind of a, uh, a structure being recreated in some form or another. And you mentioned Medicare for all. It would seem in this context of a pandemic, tens of millions of people being kicked off of their job, out of their jobs, losing their health care insurance, that this, it, it reminds me of what we talked about with the EU, which is that it would seem to me that it would make sense for U.S. firms and companies to uh, lobby for Medicare for all. Yeah, that's um, always been my belief. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've, I've always said, why do you want to put American businesses at a, at a global competitive disadvantage by making healthcare a marginal cost of doing business here in the United States? You know, when, whenever I hear people, you know, they would say, 
I remember being on Fox one time, and, and uh, you know, I had you know they started with the usual talking points about um, how Obamacare was just adding enormous incremental costs to uh, small and large businesses alike. And I said, yeah, I agree with you, uh, and that's exactly why I'd like to see a, a single payer system introduced because uh, I'd like to get those costs taken out of the hands of uh, of businesses and just become a, a public good. And and I think also um, it shouldn't. It not only should it not be a condition of uh, of, of employment, but you know, you, you have a healthcare system that's skewed um, towards uh, for profit and 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 so and not necessarily optimal health outcomes, which is why even though this country uh, spends so much more on um, uh, GDP as a uh, healthcare as a percentage of GDP, it's about fifteen percent right now. Uh, the outcomes, the health outcomes, are are pretty poor relative to other countries that do have uh, uh, single payer systems and and spend a lot money less money on as a percentage of GDP on healthcare. As life expectancy goes down in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with this sort of changing this this changing of America's unipolar moment, moving to a multipolar. Uh, moment in in history. I'm thinking here of Alfred McCoy's book, The Historian from the University of Wisconsin. It's called The Twilight of the American Century. It's a great book about this very topic. You note that economies in Asia, as they have for the past 40 years, continue to mature. America's military sort of technological dominance is slipping away, with China in particular posing a serious challenge. You talk about Japan's role in this and the role that they've played uh, vis-a-vis U.S. Uh, hegemony so, sort of since the post-World War II uh, era. Um, yeah, I, 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 did th- I mean, we've had these long historic ties with Japan by virtue of the fact that we've, you know, we beat them in World War II and uh, effectively occupied the country. Um, I just think that uh, longer term, uh, it's, it's inevitable that Japan will have to find some sort of accommodation with China. I mean, you're, you're talking about an economy of 1.4 billion people versus a, an economy that's uh, uh, only got a population of 120 million. Their interests longer term will be increasingly aligned with uh, those of other Asian countries. And, you know, we should accept that uh, and, and accept that there will be, uh, the, the, the world is going to likely um, uh devolve into uh, regional spheres of influence. The U.S. will probably be a dominant player in, in, in North America, indeed most of the Western Hemisphere. Um, Europe will go its own way, and uh, Asia will likely go its own way. But, it, you know, to, to expect, as I said in the article, I think I said, you know, that you, to expect uh, us using J- Japan to contain China, that's a bit like um, right. asking uh, the Russians to use Canada to contain the United States. I mean, it's, it just doesn't make sense. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with life post-hegemony. The the Italians for many uh, centuries lived very well, even after the Roman Empire. And we can learn to accept <laughs> that as well. <laughs> I, I agree with you. Um, this also circles back around to the EU. It's not just Japan that's being sort of moved into the sphere of influence, but that there's European nations uh, who are also striking up economic and political agreements with China. You mentioned uh, particularly Italy, who was the first to join the yeah. uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Yes, exactly. Well, th- again, this points to the, you know, you're, you're, this is another problem with the short-sightedness of European Union policy. I mean, the Italians are now um, taking aid from China because, as they said, they'll, they'll take it from wherever they can to um, help restore growth. Um, that does create uh, geostrategic challenges uh, for um, uh, Europe uh, in, in the sense that, you know, this is NATO's southern flank. Do you really want um, 
the, and and the Chinese also have very significant interests over at the in the Greek port of Piraeus as well. So um, this has got to start to might start to alarm members of NATO, for example. But again, can you blame the the, the Chinese um, uh, if if Europe doesn't work to restore some degree of economic prosperity uh, in in places like uh, southern Mediterranean, Greece, Italy? Then of course they'll they'll look elsewhere for help, and and China would be more than willing to extend its sphere of influence with it to within crucial parts of, of Europe. What do you think is the sort of balance that could be struck between national economic concerns and developing these regional economic bodies? Are there sort of guiding principles that you would suggest for politicians, people who are going to be making those decisions? Or is there sort of a, like, what would be the framework that you would think about this in? Because we see it in the United States, and you mentioned it at the end of your article. It's not just now, and in the light of the pandemic, what worries me is that it's yeah. not just Trump and the Republicans who are now talking about economic nationalism. There's a significant portion of liberal thinkers and even progressive thinkers uh, who are sort of peppering some of their analysis or suggestions with this sort of economic nationalism. How could that, I mean, is there a way to balance the two? And if so, well, what guess, does that look I, like? I, I guess, uh, you know, it's, economic nationalism is a bit of a loaded term, but I, I would say that there's nothing wrong with national industrial policy. I, I, I've, I've never really like the idea that you know we just outsource all of our manufacturing to to asia i mean that that leads to a, a race to the bottom you know you not only destroy um uh, communities in 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 the u.s it's called the rust belt for a reason and and it's not a good reason yeah. um but we live but there also, so i hear you yeah no exactly and I, I i have a lot of friends in that that part of the world but you know it's it's so you 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 want to make sure that you know you you you're, you re-domicile um uh, manufacturing so that you're not not only so you don't have these uh, supply chain vulnerabilities going forward, but that so you can reestablish high quality jobs in the United States. And okay, now the 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 purists, the free trade purists, would say, well, you know, you should let the market sort this out and 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 and, and let, allow the, the the markets to make the adjustments and retrain people, et cetera, et cetera. Except that my argument has been that well, we've tried that for forty years and it it, it doesn't seem to be working. Trade is, is fundamentally, in my opinion, a distributional issue. It's it's benefited a certain class of the population. And to my, my way of thinking is that look, you know, if it means you're spending five hundred dollars more for your car or your flat screen TV, but the the quid pro quo is that you have a vibrant manufacturing sector where you, with a bunch of high quality jobs that are here in the United States, I think that's a very very good trade off because relative GDP that doesn't really matter to you or me. I mean, we we don't experience that um, uh, we uh, subjectively. You know, if if we're if our own standard of livings are getting better. We don't care if it means that, oh, because you're doing trade this way, um, uh, your GDP is only growing, say, at two and a half rather than three percent a year. It's less efficient. You know, we, we, there are other goals in, in life other than efficiency. Um, and and, and I, don't, I, don't, I think that that's something that we have to learn. I mean, to, to give an example, uh, immigration, I mean, it's a very emotive topic, but um, what I would say about immigration is that, you know, when, when we don't have open borders, um, uh, even though that, you know, supposedly the, the migration of people would give us the lowest cost labor in theory if they, people are just moving back and forth from one spot to another. But, you know, we have other things that, that's, that are considered priorities as well. Social cohesion, um, uh, cultural cohesion, um, national security. Oh, those are all factors which mitigate against uh, that's why we have an immigration policy so you say well you know we, we, we there are other considerations beyond the lowest 
and most efficient cost of, of labor. So why do we? Uh, 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 why is trade so sacrosanct? Why is it that traded goods um, are, are, are uh, this is uh, the sort of um, these considerations don't apply for that? Especially since today's trade agreements now don't really deal with manufactured goods anymore. They deal with services which effectively entrench the positions of um, of oligopolies and multinational corporations. That's that's what really happened. Do you think it's a mistake for the left to not talk about immigration and just sort of leave that as a topic of the right? And then the yes. sort of counter reaction being just open all the borders and just let it go. Yeah. And I, and look, I, I don't think that, you know, I think that it's the left's often their views are often mischaracterized as being uh, open borders, liberalism. I, I don't think that's right. But but I do think we've come a long way from the days of, of uh the Barbara Jordan Commission uh, from the 1990s, where she prioritized, she, she did say you had to look at the effect of immigration on our most vulnerable. And I do feel that there's nothing wrong with moving towards a, a Canadian style point system where you prioritize skill, where you do have some restriction uh, for a few years to tighten up the labor markets, because, precisely because I do want to help those at the lower end of the economic scale. And uh, and again, um, our immigration system is, is very much geared towards um, uh, facilitating um, the, uh, the, the, the the benefits largely accrue to the the upper tier, not to the lower tier. You know, the 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 H1B visa being a classic example, where you right. just effectively um, use that visa, you abuse it, and and effectively uh, replace. Um, domestic labor with lower cost international labor. And I say that as sort of a dyed in the wool lefty. So I say that because we have a lot of friends who will say things like they just kind of blow it off as a non-issue. It's like, and it comes from a good place. A lot of the people who say those things, you know, have a strong moral center where they're saying, look, we have the resources, we have the money. Why can't we take these people in? Why can't we take care of them, et cetera, et cetera? And I think there are obviously distinctions between refugees, distinction sure. between people seeking exile and so forth. But it's just been frustrating because this has now been an issue that's largely dominated by the right. And I feel like we have to develop some kind of a coherent uh, counterbalance to their, you know, yeah, their ideology. Well, as I say, Canada is, is, a, uh, is, a, is a net, net uh, I think, one, one, one and a half percent uh, net immigration every year comes into the country, but they 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 do tend to prioritize uh, skill, their point system, and I think we have to do the same thing. It's 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 not an absolute right to come into this country, and you have to do it in a way that benefits the people that live here. And that's it's not, and I I, I don't say that you do that on the basis of race, so ra- certainly not racial quotas. Um, I don't care which country they come from, but uh, it it should be very much skills based, so that they that there is a a net benefit um, to to uh, more of us. And in the U.S., we have a obviously the U.S. has a, a military empire. So fifty three cents yeah. of every discretionary dollars being spent on the U.S. military empire, a significant portion of um, you know manufacturing, et cetera, the the jobs that are that remain here in Northwest Indiana are largely jobs, those that do still exist in factories and manufacturing plants are largely for military equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think the role of you, what, how do I put this question? What do you think the role of U.S. empire is, U.S. militarism in this context of a multipolar world? My concern would be that the U.S. sort of lashes out at these changing economic, this changing economic landscape and political landscape understanding that the one hegemonic power that we still have left would be our military force. Yeah, I think that's a risk. And I think that it's a problem that, that um, you know, that 
these relics of the Cold War are still being embraced as the status quo. Uh, and that seems to be across the political divide. I mean, to me, it's ironic that, I mean, it's, and it's somewhat alarming that, you know, so many of the country's neocons, the guys that got us into a lot of these wars are, are gravitating to the Biden camp, you know? So I, I do get concerned about that. But look, if, if we're going to have a, a significant amount of, of military expenditure, I'd at least uh, like to see the military being used in a way that it was, um, you know, several decades ago, where, whereby, for example, like Semitech, which is a, a the semiconductor consortium that was established in the 1980s because it was felt that the U.S. was developing a strategic vulnerability in the um, uh, design and, and construction of semiconductors. That was a, a, a government, and, uh, and that was largely driven by military and national security concerns. That was a government-led consortium that actually revived the semiconductor industry in the United States. And by the same, same token, we could have the military creating markets for products by saying, you know, if you provide me with um, this kind of a vehicle that can do A, B, C, and D, you know, I can guarantee you a market of, of X million vehicles. I mean, so I'd like to see it more closely melded towards um, uh, having a dual use structure, you know, where you can get derived more civilian benefits from it. And we don't do that enough. And even outside of the economic sphere, say even with regard to climate change, it would seem to me with the kind of equipment, being a former Marine myself and having spent right. four years in the Marine Corps, it's like, you know, I look at the amount of equipment, logistical capacity, uh, technologies that exist, the over thousand military bases that are around the world. Now, some of the places that they're located, people don't want those military bases anymore. Yeah. But for those who would be willing to sort of keep them there, it's like, climate centers or centers to like keep track yeah. of what's happening with changing climates and, and biospheres and, and ecologies and so forth. Things like that seem to me to make a lot of sense. The problem that I can see is that of all the issues we're having a robust discussion and debate about uh, in the United States, um, some more than others, the one issue that still remains completely off the table is uh, U.S. empire and a real discussion uh, mm, about that's it. Right. That's right. And, and, and in fact, the military budget, it never gets cut. I mean, even, even in the uh, post-Cold War period, the rate of growth might have slowed, but, but um, it, it never gets cut. And, and the military has worked the system very, very well. They, they ensure that they've got um, bases and all sorts of production all spread across all the, 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 the different states. So you get a nice bit of political engineering so that, you know, if you start talking about cuts, they'll go they will immediately start introducing cuts or threaten to introduce cuts to the most politically sensitive. So they'll say, well, you know, too bad about that, that naval base in, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which has created, you know, you know, uh, several hundred jobs or, you know, this uh, air base out in California, we're going to have to cut that back. So yeah, you, you want to uh, reorient the country's uh, considerable fiscal resources towards other things other than military and, and empire. And as you say, it's um, because ultimately it's, it, it is, problematic and it, it's not it's not good for our national security to have a weakened industrial hollow uh, shell um, where we all we do is produce military goods no and we see that playing out politically domestically where we live where there's a tremendous you know upsurge and has been for the last four years of right-wing nationalist groups uh, racist organizations and mm -hmm. all kinds of very militant uh, right-wing groups um, that pose yeah. a number of problems for people uh, not just yeah. socially, but politically, economically, and so on. Yeah, that's right. And 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 I think the more that you 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 have the military 
becoming the predominant uh, entity in terms of manufacturing, it, it actually starts to degrade uh, the civilian economy. I mean, you could see that, for example, in Boeing. Um, you know, Boeing used to be synonymous with great civil engineering, but uh, you know they, they've been having real problems with the, uh, the well, the seven three seven and more uh, and less, uh, and then before that the seven eighty seven. But part of the problem is that you 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 had that uh, you had the military get its paws into the company, and they merged it with with, with McDonnell Douglas uh, years ago, and that whole military culture began to suffuse. Uh, the, the 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 company's uh, uh, work ethic and 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 how, the, how they they made, they built things and I think started to create uh, a situation where they were producing lousy planes, which in turn uh, in uh, meant that they lost market share to Airbus. Just as an example, do you think that there's still and I, I know we're running out of time, but I want to ask you if you think that there there seems to be on the left. I think before Donald Trump, there was this sense of like. We're moving into a world where nation states don't matter as much. Multinational corporations are the sort of dominant political economic force. Nation states are sort of these vessels that corporations use. I think that was the dominant sort of theme that that yeah. was being. Has been for. I mean, if you ever read, uh, if you, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the film Network. Um, yeah. There's that great scene of Ned Beatty's when he makes exactly the same uh, speech from the right. Uh, interestingly enough, um, right. In, 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 and that was '76. I think that film was made. So, I think. Um, the 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 death of the nation state has been uh, vastly overstated, um, and I think it's um, I think the further we get away from um, national, indeed local structures, the less democratic we become. And that and and these these my concern has always been of these um, large um, uh, global uh, uh, entities, you know, whether that be the World Trade Organization or um, um, other other uh, areas uh, that that policy becomes um, more technocratic and it becomes less politically accountable, and that you start seeing um, um, policy being made on behalf of large uh, oligopolies and multinationals rather than um, um, for the average person. You know, you you don't you never see a, a world trade agreement that actually talks about, for example, um, harmonization of labor standards. They, 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 they'll talk about harmonization of industrial standards because they want to have, the, if they're, especially if they're the dominant uh, country with a, in re regard to a particular standard, or they talk about protection of intellectual property rights, but they won't talk about um, tax harmonization policies. That, th those things right there show you the, 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 the biases that are, are, are implicit in these, in these uh, globalist institutions. In those institutions, the last question I'll have for you is that it's not that you don't think we should have such institutions, but that we've put too much power in those institutions' hands and that, in other words, the way I w I'm thinking about this, particularly in the context It's mission of creep, I would say. Okay. That's what tends to happen, you know, and, and I think um, uh, you, you, you can pull back. I mean, as I said before, uh, the, the WTO used to be GATT, and that dealt with um, the liberalization of traded goods. But now it's we're we're no you know, we're no longer doing that anymore. Now we're 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 talking about you know services and 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 we're we're talking about issues that have very very little to do with trade and very much to do with um, privileging certain multinational corporations. And I think that's where it needs to be rolled back a bit. And for a, an issue like climate change, do you think that we should create new sort of superstructure institutions internationally, or do you think that there's agreements that nation states could come up with that would also 
deal with well, those I, issues? I, I, look, I, I think that's that's I, what I say is where a global solution is, is is necessary. Then you should work towards that. But again, uh, the Paris, I mean, the Paris Accord, it, it, despite its limitations, is, is a is a considerable uh, achievement, and that was a group of nations working together under the auspices of the UN to, to achieve an objective. And I think that was a very, very important thing to do. So in those kinds of situations, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely um, like the idea of, of, of seeing, um, you know, global cooperation, but you know, you have, you can have the cooperation still, or the accountability still residing at the national level. I don't believe in, in, in world government. I just think that's unworkable. And, you know, um, look, our, our own, national government is, is hugely dysfunctional right now. How do we expect to work better if we, if we have a, a, a United States of a global United States of the world kind of thing? <laughs> uh, we make the same argument horrific. to our activist friends who uh, try and engage in large national projects. And we say, hey, you know, what's going on locally? And they say, our local town's a disaster. And we say, well, before we work yeah, on a statewide go. project, yeah, maybe Voltaire we should says, get our so. shit together at the local level. Yeah, that's right. You Mar- know, like Voltaire says, your, you got to cultivate your own garden first. So, I, uh, I appreciate your time, Marshall. I just became aware of your work, so I apologize for my ignorance, but I have nope. really enjoyed going Thank through you. your, I've really enjoyed going through your articles and I'm glad to see you uh, sort of more and more out there. So, yeah, no, it, it's I'm, it's partly because of people like you that are uh, hearing it and disseminating it. So I'm very appreciative. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, thanks for your time today, Marshall. And we'll talk again. Okay. Thanks a lot. All thanks right. Guys. Take care. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org that's p-a-r-c media.org make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel below also you could find us on instagram at park media facebook at politics art roots culture and you could find me on twitter at vince emanuele